You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. We're on the verge of the March 29th deadline for the United Kingdom to leave the European Union. No one knows how it will ultimately turn out as the British government executes its high-wire Brexit shamble walk through Westminster toward Brussels, but some of the lessons are apparent despite the uncertain outcome. And with elections to the European Parliament happening at the end of May, what direction Europeans want for the European Union is an increasingly salient issue. French President Emmanuel Macron put it this way in the headline of an op-ed that recently appeared simultaneously across Europe. Dear Europe, Brexit is a lesson for us all. It's time for renewal. The French president calls for a European renaissance that would build a closer-knit European Union, focused on the issues that concern many voters these days, with sweeping proposals for security, especially protecting Europe's borders, social progress, including a European minimum wage, and scientific and economic innovation. It's more of an election platform than a program for governing, but still a big contribution to the discussion of Europe's direction. What is Germany's view on Macron's agenda? Leader of the Christian Democratic Union, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, issued her response a few days later. She shared President Macron's urgency, but argued that there is more support for the European idea than ever before. She echoed the emphasis on securing Europe's borders, strengthening innovation, and standing up a European Security Council that would include Great Britain, by the way, keeping up ties to the British Isles, even after Brexit. In this episode of The Zeitgeist, we talk about the direction Germany's security policy is taking. We are lucky to have with us two of the most perceptive German observers in the field, Dr. Jana Pulirin of the German Council on Foreign Relations and Sophia Besch from the Center for European Reform. They are, by the way, the dynamic duo behind a recent article in the Berlin Policy Journal, which I highly recommend. It's in English for those of you who are not German speakers. Join us as we cover four fundamental questions. What is Germany's role in European security? Are the changes in German policy adequate for the changing international security environment? How are Germany and France seeking to strengthen their cooperation? And how can the United States and Germany manage their frictions in the interest of a stronger transatlantic relationship? Welcome to this edition of the Zeitgeist. Uh, I'm here with Dr. Jana Pulirin of the German Council on Foreign Relations and Sophia Besch from the Center for European Reform. Welcome to both of you. Hi, thanks Hi. for having us. Terrific to have you here. And uh, I look forward to talking about uh, European defense today. And I thought maybe we would um, organize uh, our conversation like a symphony in four movements. So we'll do the Allegro um, by <laughs> talking about Germany's role in European security. And uh, I'd be interested to hear from, uh, hear from each of you, where does Germany see its role in European security? Start with you, Jana. Well, I think um, we have to refer to 2014, although everybody uh, in Germany now does that because that was really a crucial moment for Germany's uh, foreign and security policy development, the big speeches in Munich, the so-called Munich consensus, and um, the idea that Germany needs to take uh, over more international responsibility and become a more prominent actor on the global stage, particularly in European security. And uh, this was the 
kind of widely shared rhetoric and belief. Uh, and so I think this is still true, although I think we are lacking behind a bit indeed. So we were great in rhetoric back then, but mm -hmm. uh, since 2014, it became pretty obvious that although Germany sees its role rather like important and prominent, um, it's not sticking to a lot of the initial promises. And you've been quite critical, if I might say, and persuasively so, uh, about the failure to live up to the rhetoric. Um, so, so where should uh, where should Germany be going? Well, uh, I now? think I think we saw uh, different faces in the very beginning. Um, I think when the promises were made in Munich, uh, nobody in the government really knew what was uh, going to happen with the annexation of Crimea and all that. And after the shocks uh, and because of the promises made, I think there was really a, a progress and movement in German foreign and security policy for quite some time. And some taboos were broken, some big decisions were made. But then I think immediately before we entered the last election campaign phase for the general uh, election, somebody kind of put the snooze button and <laughs> since then I mean we are not waking up and it's actually we are I think we are uh, going backwards because um, we, we have the same debates all over um, again like for example when we had the debate about Syria and what to do uh, with it um, the German government again uh, like several times before applauded all the allies and friends who kind of contributed and, and did something and conducted airstrikes whereas the German government uh, supporting uh, all this uh, refrained from participating in any way and so this is for me one of the debates we are kind of having over and over again and that's why I think we are stuck in a holding pattern. <laughs> so torpor um, is one word <laughs> we can start with. Sophia, do you do, do you share that view or um, yeah, see it differently? No, I, I do share that view. I'm, and far be it for me to defend the German government or any of its choices on security and defense policy. I would just perhaps say that I think progress is slow and it's frustratingly slow for allies that expect more from Germany um, and they're right to expect more because of the Munich declarations and because of the crucial role that a big economy like Germany should play in European defense, um, not least in European defense spending. I do see that the conversation, the d internal conversation in Germany is moving on slowly and we're sort of tackling one topic at a time. And we have quite a lot to catch up on. So I think currently we're discussing arms export controls. It's very frustrating for our friends and allies because Germany has been quite restricted from a very moral point of view in its exports. But Germany's dealing with this big dichotomy between, on the one hand, uh, thinking of itself as a pacifist power, on the other hand, having quite a big arms industry. That's a big chasm that you have to kind of... Uh, bridge in the debates. So that's just one of the conversations that internally I think is moving the country forward, just not fast enough to the liking of its allies. So when when I talk to German officials and observers, I hear a few things about Germany's role of and its vision for European defense. The first one is that, that NATO remains the anchor um, for, for Germany's security policy. Absolutely. Agree? No, I think we both, Sophia and I both agree um, on that, that it remains the, the focal point, especially when, you, when we're talking really about defense policy and defending Europe and collective defense. Which is funny, though, because you wouldn't get that impression if you listen to the speeches that uh, Germany's politicians That's make. That's right where I was headed. Uh, <laughs> oh, you've sorry, anticipated. Yeah. No, 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 absolutely. <laughs> Keep going. I mean, uh, NATO remains the anchor, but 
when you listen to the public discourse, German politicians frame a lot of it in terms of the EU. And I think there are several reasons for that. Uh, it just sounds better to a German public that thinks of Germany as the good European. It's a bit more comfortable uh, to do defense in EU terms rather than in alliance terms. It's not as close to the US, which at the moment has a bit of a bad reputation in Germany. Oh, we're definitely going to get to that. <laughs> I thought so. Um, and it is a bit more institutions focused and a bit less actually hard defense output focused. So we have these big topics like the European army, for example, that is mm -hmm. very popular in Germany. But then if you look closer and you're right, uh, when you talk to the officials, Germany's uh, efforts actually go into NATO. And mm -hmm. actually, if you if you look at uh, where the money uh, is spent on uh, or what the money is spent on and and where Germany uh, is engaged, I mean, you really see uh, a bigger German footprint in NATO. I mean, of course, this um, kind of Germany bashing I did in the beginning is true, but uh, Sophia is right. I mean, we made uh, progress, especially in NATO. Germany became uh, kind of a European backbone of NATO and uh, has shown significantly more um, kind of ambition and is also planning to spend a, a lot of the, the additional money uh, on NATO stuff. Well, and uh, Germany is certainly the country that has the most at stake in the multinational, multilateral security order. Um, both in the transatlantic context and I, I think uh, you could argue globally as well. So um, it makes sense uh, on the one hand that Germany would be reinvesting in NATO and that's where the money uh, is going. But at the same time, the, the policy initiative seems very much to lie uh, on, in a European context and especially in, in an EU context. Yeah, well, I think Germany sees or looks at its defense as organized in two big pillars, the NATO pillar on the one hand and the EU pillar on the other hand. And you're right, multilateralism, multilateralist or organizations and institutions are the backbone of anything Germany does on security and defense because of its history and because of the way it, it looks at the world, which is why um, the current doubts, let's say, over NATO's future are particularly traumatizing for Germany. And I think what we're seeing right now is a very slow rethink and adaptation of what that might mean for the country. For now, as we said, the security is still mostly organized through NATO. But then in the future, I think there is sort of an attempt to build up the EU as more of a security and defense player, to build up the European pillar within NATO. But that's a medium to long term project. And immediately um, at the moment, Germany still very much relies on NATO and, of course, the US in it uh, for its security and defense. And But if I may add something, you have to see uh, Germany's uh, engagement in CSDP and, and European defense initiatives um, as also um, kind of the attempt to counter the current trend in the EU of fragmentation, of erosion, and of the whole club falling apart. So Germany tries to see European defense inside the EU framework also as something that is um, like this, the need for more security is widely shared among European citizens and all the governments supported. So as something that could uh, glue kind of the EU together and, and, and yeah. That's mm -hmm. put very, very positively and sort of the <laughs> negative take on this, which, which I'll do, is that Germany is um, 
abusing defense as a way to further integration in the European Union rather than trying to actually get somewhere with it. Well, this brings us to the second movement of this symphony, the Adagio, um, which is European initiatives. Uh, and there's a real tension uh, that that there that you see. One is what you've just identified, Sophia, and that is that that uh, Germany has an inherent interest in European integration, um, and sometimes defense initiatives may serve that uh, without serving necessarily the development of usable capabilities um, mm -hmm. for defense. On the other hand, Diana, you were also alluding to the, the medium and longer term need for Germany and for Europe to have options. That is, the future of United States policy five to 10 to 20 years out is hard to predict. And so Germany needs to be able to develop its security response in a variety of ways, depending on what might happen. Um, at, on the one hand, that suggests practical approaches that bridge the EU and NATO, um, but there's also a, a consistent German preference for institutional solutions, in particular in a European context, which goes against uh, that, that desire for flexibility and pragmatism. So how to make sense of all of these things? Where, where could they go? And I would highlight here that, uh, that Jana and Sophia are the authors of a recent article you can find in the Berlin Policy Journal, which addresses many of these issues called um, uh, All Hands on Deck, at least in the English title. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, yeah, as I sort of alluded in, alluded to earlier, what we're seeing is uh, Germany is slowly building up EU's defense role um, in partnership with France. So um, both France and Germany, I think, after 2016, which was a sort of seminal year for European defense, have pushed forward with a lot of political will the EU's defense role. And we've since seen a plethora of initiatives, uh, lots of acronyms. I don't know if we want to go into them now. I, we can we can <laughs> skip we can skip them, but there are many. There are many, and they're quite. I mean, they're significant because what they're doing is mostly focusing on capabilities and on spending a bit more money on using the EU's Commission budget to uh, further more capability building, joint capability development in the European Union. So you can't really fault Germany uh, in that regard because they have really pushed for a bigger role there. The problem is um, we're now seeing that a lot of the initial enthusiasm between Paris and Berlin is starting to slow down a little bit because we have these different visions that you sketched out earlier. We have France that tries to be a bit more ambitious and output oriented. Germany that is really trying to keep everybody in the boat, um, be a bit more inclusive with its initiatives. Mm -hmm. And uh, now we are seeing first disagreements. I will mention another initiative, the European Intervention Initiative, which is French-led, which is happening outside of EU structures right. in order to be a bit more ambitious, in order to bring the UK post-Brexit into European defense. And Germany is a bit more doubtful, a bit more critical of this because they go against this ambition to uh, use defense to further EU integration. Mm -hmm. I think the German vision is also to see um, the EU and CSDP as kind of the, the center stage for European defense um, outside the NATO framework. They, the Germans, um, because they, they think that, for example, the new French intervention initiative would undermine the cohesion of the European Union even further, they are kind of allergic um, against 
all attempts to build ad hoc coalitions outside the EU framework um, and and having um, bilateral and multilateral initiatives. I mean, they 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 are part of these initiatives uh, and they have uh, special relations um, with some countries militarily, with the Dutch, for example. But um, they only think positively about these initiatives and they join them as long as they um, strengthen the EU and the cohesion of the EU and don't undermine it. That is mm -hmm. kind of the bar for, for Germany. A and there's, of course, there's a burden sharing argument here as well, that the more that if the United States uh, rightfully uh, demands that Europe take on greater responsibility for its own security, that developing European defense, including in an EU context, uh, can be a contribution uh, to it. And especially if you have developments like the, the European Commission um, uh, funding going to support the R&D and then the, the development of, of uh, actual defense capabilities. So there is that argument. But the, the bigger question I want to ask both of you is whether these European initiatives, taken all together, there is the European Intervention Initiative, there is the European Defense Fund, there is the uh, PESCO, there is the Coordinated Annual Review on Defense, all of these things which uh, we've talked about in other episodes of the Zeitgeist, if you want to go back and listen to them, but uh, are these, in your view, sufficient to address the, the real challenges that confront Germany and Europe in a, in a deteriorating international environment, and over what time frame? So far, they are surely not sufficient, and most of the European defense cooperation uh, happens outside all these acronym frameworks. But I think they have potential, and they have more potential than uh, one would think uh, reading all the think tankers' pieces bashing the initiatives, uh, including the, the things I wrote. But um, if all these initiatives kind of work together and are really used the way they were meant to, um, for example, use CARD and PESCO and the EDF like really together and not recycle old projects for PESCO, which have been um, hidden in desks forever and are now uh, kind of upcycled again. But if you really use the CARD process to identify um, what you really need to, to, what kind of capabilities you really uh, need, and then identify PESCO projects and then finance them uh, with the um, help of the, the EDF, I think um, that could really be something which potentially in the future could really have an impact or change things. But so far, it's it's it's, it's not enough. I, I mean, uh, if you look at the PESCO project, especially the first round of them, it's really, oh, how do you say, old wine in new pipes? Uh, old wine in new <laughs> bottles. Um, uh, or, you know, to go back to our, our, our sleep um, uh, you know, analogy, you know, it's sort of uh, soporific. Um, uh, go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, two things, really. I think they can be useful if there's new money because it all comes down to defense spending in Europe. Uh, the EU is trying to foster capability development. That's great. They can make it easier. They can make it less bureaucratic. They can set incentives for member states to work together, but we'll only get somewhere if there's actually an increase in defense spending, um, less of a focus on protecting national industries, more of a European thinking and national defense ministries. One. And two, I think it makes sense to think about what can the EU usefully do that NATO can't do. And there is a few things really just um, as a function of the way it's set up. The EU has a way to make member states do things. That that it's can, a regulatory it's superpower. It's a regulatory power, you know, it can uh, enforce decisions. Um, 
it's not a defense power and it'll be a while before we build up the sort of defense strategic thinking mm -hmm. in the EU if, if that's ever. the goal. But there are a few challenges that Europe is facing that are not traditional conventional hard defense challenges. Think about the hybrid challenge. Think about cyber. The EU can really play quite a big role in forcing member states to increase their capabilities in these uh, in these areas. So I think mm -hmm. there's there's definitely potential. Yeah, and uh, think about military mobility. I mean, even uh, dyed in the wool, uh, NATO freaks are in favor uh, of this PASCO project, enhancing um, military mobility in Europe. So it's not an exclusive thing. It's not either the acronym initiatives or NATO. It's both ideally work hand in hand. That's right. And a, a footnote there, I mean, for listeners, the military mobility, it's it's really about the ability of, of European uh, countries and the United States, whether it's in a NATO or an EU context, to move military forces uh, and equipment quickly um, across European space because the EU has responsibility for transportation um, and not NATO, um, it makes sense to have this kind of collaboration. Um, but Sophia, I want to try to pin you down on the question of whether these initiatives, especially where they are valuable, over what time frame are they going to make a difference um, in, a, in a European and in an EU context? Decades. Decades. Yeah, I mean, that's inherent to the defense industry itself. If you plan, defense capability planning always takes this long. Um, but also if you look at the financial frameworks that we're looking at, so the EU money that is currently mm -hmm. being negotiated, that would uh, for the first time be spent in the next EU budget. Which starts in 2022? 21, yes. And mm -hmm. uh, take uh, sort of seven years. And it's not a lot of money. It's significant in the EU context, which is why we're also excited about it, because yes. it's the first time that the EU is spending money. But if you look at it through the defense uh, planner's eyes, it's not as much as you would need to make a significant difference. If you look at the kind of capability projects that uh, member states are currently planning, like the next future combat aircraft between Germany and France, that will take years, as will a European drone, as will the next European tank. So we're still looking at quite a significant time that where we have to bridge mm -hmm. um, a lack of European defense capability where NATO and the United States will still be crucial for the defense of Europe. And just a footnote, but the multi-annual financial framework is uh, kind of, they only start to negotiate it, um, the, the country, so it's not uh, set in stone. Um, yes, though it, it looks likely. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> But That's you right. never and know. We'll, and we'll have a European Parliament election yeah, before exactly. then. Yeah, exactly. And you never know with a new commission, and you, n you don't know when uh, they will decide uh, on, on, on that budget and uh, if that will be before or after the elections. And so mm -hmm. I think there is still some room for surprises. Okay. So transition to the third movement, which is a minuet, France and Germany. Um, That's beautiful, really. It's very poetic. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, I, what I think is interesting, um, Sophia um, said before that initially there was kind of a, a romance between Germany and France and, and both countries decided to, to kick off these new initiatives. And I think that this romance was based on a, on a huge misunderstanding uh, because the French, um, I think, thought that the Germans would become more like them finally after all those years. And with the mm -hmm. narrative um, that uh, came out of the 2005 14 Munich consensus, like the new responsibility, let's call it blah, blah, <laughs> <laughs> um, would lead to a Germany that would defense-wise act more like France. Um, and that, I think, was a misunderstanding from the very beginning, because that was never Germany's intention. Mm -hmm. Or maybe there is uh, a strategic calculation that uh, for France, by, by behaving as if Germany uh, was ready to go in that direction, that you could pull 
Germany in that direction. I think a lot of the French initiatives, not only in defense context, but when you look at how France leads in Europe, um, it is often by trying to strike out in a way that that uh, that attracts or compels others to follow. It well, doesn't always work, yeah. um, but so sometimes far, it does. The French have not been, I think, s that successful. If you look, for example, at the PESCO projects, I would call that a German success. Uh, but I don't know if you agree, Sophia. No, I do. I, there's been a lot of um, pushing and pulling between the two, a lot of mm -hmm. internal negotiations, but this, which is frustrating for all other European allies because then suddenly the European project becomes about Berlin and Paris, yeah. and it should be about everybody. Well, um, if we talk about Berlin and Paris, we're gonna we're gonna start with with the Treaty of Aachen. And for listeners, I don't mean the Treaty of Aachen from 1748 <laughs> that ended the War of Austrian Succession. <laughs> I was so prepared. That, no doubt, will be the subject of a future uh, episode of the Zeitgeist. Um, but um, I would also comment that Aachen is a beautiful city, well worth a visit. Um, uh, as a Pittsburgher, uh, I have a sympathy for the black and gold of Alemannia Aachen. Uh, and I have a taste for the Reibekuchen, um, which are uh, absolutely delicious uh, potato pancakes. But um, the Aachen Treaty, um, which was signed by Germany and France just recently. It has a lot of the, um, you know, the instinctive um, mutual reliance that we see in German-French relations since the end of the, the, the Second World War. Um, but it seems to be missing a lot of concrete measures, in particular when we talk about defense and security. Or did I miss something? No, I think that was sort of the, the frustration of many after it was signed. The only thing I would say is that this is a very broad treaty and we can expect and we're already seeing France and Germany to make it more concrete in additional papers. That's mm -hmm. what we're seeing currently with arms exports, for example. Okay. And um, even if it is true that Germany and France started or, or are still on uh, totally different um, planets, um, it is also true that Germany and France are crucial uh, to move European defense forward. I mean, of course, we need everybody on board and also the small member states. And it's not only about um, a Franco-German tandem moving forward, but I think um, this tandem is crucial. And I think that or I hope that by now also in Berlin, um, this understanding became more prominent because right after Macron was elected, there was a huge hooray um, mm -hmm. in Berlin and a huge uh, sign of relief that it was not a Le Pen. But then uh, the German enthusiasm for everything proposed by Macron uh, slowed down. So I see the Aachen Treaty. I was disappointed by the Aachen Treaty. Uh, but then again, um, I also I, I was happy that at the end they at least managed to agree on, on, on something, and I, I think this is a basis for, for, for further collaboration. Mm -hmm. and, and if I can switch from there to the op-ed that uh, French President Macron published uh, just in the past, uh, in the past week, um, you know, in it, in the terms uh, and the, the urgency that he uh, conveys when, when you look at uh, Europe is, is really quite striking. I mean, he says, quote, we need to do more and faster. Now is the time for a European renaissance. Now, of course, we might be uh, used to rhetorical flights uh, from, in particular, from French leaders. But I think there is, you know, he's, he's making a point and he's making a point uh, to all of Europe, not only to Germany. Maybe that's because of a little um, frustration with the slow response, as, as Jana, you were just referring to. Yeah. <laughs> Disenchantment, okay. But at, at the same time, we shouldn't forget that um, Mr. Macron is very much in campaign mode and um, kind of with the uh, yellow vests in France, the, the movement, kind of the protest movement against his um, 
government and uh, uh, plans, he's severely weakened and he wants to, to be back in the game when it comes to European elections. So I would read this um, op-ed also um, as kind of an election campaign uh, manifesto. manifesto. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is very that's the very German reading. I think you can have <laughs> you can have a more cynical German reading, which is um, the one that Jana just laid out of a president campaigning. And that's, I think, how Berlin took this op-ed and reacted to it. Or you could see it as Macron's, you know, follow-up to the Sorbonne speech, mm-hmm. um, which is how others read it. And uh, I think those were disappointed by Germany's muted response. However, that is because I think Macron's sense of urgency, uh, Jeff, you just referred to, is not shared in Berlin. I mean, everybody in Berlin is, of course, worried about the future of the EU. Um, but then uh, Germany in the EU is very much a status quo power so far. So we mm-hmm. like because Germany also profited so much uh, over the last years when everybody else was suffering. So for us, the EU is fine the way or was fine the way it is. I mean, it has uh, its shortcomings, but I think in Berlin there is not that sense that we need this glorious revolution uh, for the European Union now. So, got it. Um, I think you know the, the the language is is pretty striking to me. I mean, there's one sentence in which Macron says the EU has forgotten the realities of the world. Now, that may be a campaign um, uh, statement, but I think it's a, a clarity of, uh, of analysis that uh, when you couple it with things like his call for a treaty on defense and security, um, for increased defense spending, which if you were to talk about that in an EU context, um, given the EU's budgetary uh, oversight um, and with respect to national uh, decision making, all of these things would open up uh, a whole lot of uh, new, uh, new interesting uh, uh, ideas. But I take the point that uh, this is uh, also a, a longer term um, thing. But if I can switch from there, from Macron to a German, one German response um, to to this, which came from the chairperson of the CDU, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, um, uh, not for that beautifully. Uh, well, you know, I've been practicing. Um, uh, it makes me feel good when I hear Germans uh, stumble over it as much as uh, as I do. Um, uh, she she wrote uh, a a long response uh, to to these ideas, um, which emphasized or let's say harmonized with some, but also had a quite different. Uh, vision. Um, how much a significance do you attribute to the fact that this came from the CDU leader rather than from uh, the government? Uh, does that suggest the government can't make up its mind? Or no, it is this, is this a... Mm-hmm. as a campaign manifesto from Macron. So uh, Macron wrote this in, in, in German eyes, not as the president of France, but as the party or movement leader of En Marche. And uh, that's why he got an answer from the party leader of the CDU, CSU. Oh, the CDU. Do you see in there a suggestion also that uh, that chairperson of the CDU is not the only office Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer will have in the uh, in the next year or two? Well, we don't need this uh, to suggest <laughs> that well, she's already been very much set up by Chancellor Merkel as uh, her likely successor. Um, though, you know, who knows? But he, she's the one that the CDU is currently putting uh, all her cards into. I think her response in terms of content was frustrating and, and a bit annoying, actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> because um, she is reviving some ideas that we had already dropped, like an EU seat for the UN Security Council or the move of the European Parliament from Strasbourg to Brussels, which are ideas that we know France will always oppose, that the Aachen Treaty had already dropped. And so I think, again, we see 
the European defense debate reduced to political squabbling between Paris and Berlin. And I would sort of maybe take slight issue with the point that you made earlier, Diana, which is that it really, it all comes down to, and it will continue to come down to the Franco-German tandem on defense. I used to think that, and I'm starting to slightly move away from that, because I just think that in European defense, if we depend on compromise between France and Germany, we're never going to get anywhere because <laughs> mm-hmm. one of the two countries is so far out of the mainstream, Germany. And mm-hmm. so I think this is a point that we make in our in our paper that you kindly plugged earlier, Jeff, also, which is that this is a sort of all hands on deck situation right, right now. And we're going to see more flexible formats, including other member states. But in fairness, yeah, in fairness to Macron and to uh, Akaka, uh, as she's also known, uh, they also talk about a European Security Council, which would include Great Britain. Um, yeah. So they are, it, 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 that that is one area where they did seem to agree. Yeah, that, that this so idea of including the United Kingdom uh, in European security architecture, even after it leaves the EU. Yeah, I think there is sort of broad agreement on that, even though the beauty of the European Security Council is that nobody knows what it is and what it means <laughs> or what it will shape up to be. Yeah. Um, that, just, uh, ju- that just put out there for now. I think the question of integrating the UK into the European security uh, framework is an incredibly important one. And it's one that uh, enjoys broad support uh, among German political elites, even though the UK hasn't really had um, much support from Germany in fighting this fight, which comes Mm -hmm. back to um, the theme that we uh, talked about in the beginning, which is that Germany puts EU uh, integration and political unity above all else, including above the need to have the UK a, a member of the EU st- security structure post-Brexit. Jana? Well, I think Germany definitely uh, needs to be more flexible and open when it comes to other coalitions. Um, but I think it, um, maybe to clarify that when I talked about the Franco-German tandem, I said that this is the motor of um, progress, I think, inside the EU framework. And I think th- without them agreeing on something, it, but I mean, it, it's really not going any, any, any further. But the problem is that Germany, I think, is too much looking on the EU framework and just uh, with too much exclusivity and not um, it's not open enough for other formats because it's so afraid that these other formats could undermine the cohesion of the EU. But I think with Brexit now, um, the, the whole problem um, is at a completely new level because um, the UK is such an important player in defense and if we talk about European defense, we have to talk about the UK. And what I thought was really interesting is that, um, I mean, the Security Council, the European Security Council was um, talked about by Chancellor Merkel several times, but I always understood that she meant um, this to be an instrument in the EU framework. Right. And this time, um, AKK uh, mirrored what Macron wrote in, in his op-ed, and because she said it's an, a European Security Council with the UK yes. to 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 define further foreign and security European policy priorities. And for me, that was a step forward because I thought this opens up um, room for for cooperation and also. Um, you can link it to the French European Intervention Initiative uh, quite beautifully. So I thought that with that, uh, AKK opened a window. Uh, okay. Maybe. So, so, so maybe can, I'm too hopeful. Okay. Size. Well, <laughs> so the the third movement uh, was under the theme of concord or discord, and I think we see some elements of of each. And so the fourth movement is a rondo, U.S.-German relations, um, and I would give the theme dependency and distraction. 
Um, mm -hmm. But I'll let you uh, respond to that. I think if we look at the uh, relations across the Atlantic, you have threat of tariffs and indeed the imposition of tariffs um, you, on aluminum and steel. You have a disagreement more principally about multilateral approaches, which is expressed in Secretary of State Pompeo's December speech in Brussels. You have some specific disagreements, North Stream 2 and the Iran nuclear deal, uh, for example, where there is uh, the, the threat uh, of, of U.S. either sanction or punitive measures um, uh, when, when European companies uh, do things the United States is not in agreement with. And then you've also got uh, the, the idea burbling within the U.S. Uh, administration of finding ways to demand greater compensation from European countries like Germany that host U.S. forces. So uh, all of these uh, are adding to the frictions and tensions in, in the German-American relationship. Um, Germany also becomes, I think, for some people in the United States, a um, portrayed sometimes as a free rider because of its low defense spending, but also seen as a proxy for Euroscepticism or even outright anti-EU sentiment in, in the United States. Um, so against that backdrop, um, do, you, do you feel optimistic because the relationship has, uh, has endured despite uh, these challenges? Or do you have, uh, or do, the, do your concerns outweigh um, the, uh, the faith in, uh, in the durability of, of this uh, relationship between the United States and Germany? Living in Germany, I have to say that um, like Germans feel, as you alluded to, particularly under threat from the Trump administration. I think if you could pick one single country in Europe that is like particularly in the kind of bad ally camp or number one in the bad ally camp, it's it's usually Germany. So uh, it doesn't look uh, very good from from a German perspective. At the same time, I think transatlantic relations and what we have built is much larger than this current Trump administration. And uh, I haven't given up my hopes that um, in a time after this administration that we will have better relations again and less tensions and frictions. However, I think Germans have to get used to the fact that things are changing and that the old deal uh, in, in the transatlantic relationship is not uh, longer on offer and that we have to negotiate a new transatlantic agreement how both sides could have the impression that the relationship is mutually beneficial and that both benefit from it equally. Sophia? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think um, the situation right now is particularly dire and it's difficult to be optimistic um, about a relationship with the US under this current administration. Um, it's more interesting, I think, to look beyond the, uh, this administration because Germany will find a way of dealing with this by keeping its head down, by no longer being sort of the spokesperson for Europe. I think that's uh, not very helpful in the current context because of the perfect storm mm -hmm. of grievances that you've outlined. It's more interesting to look at what will happen after this president, how can we shape this new relationship. Um, and I think right now when you speak to people in Berlin, there's still a bit of a struggle between those who hope that they can just sit out this president and those who try to plan for a new future. Do they think that's two years or do they think that's six years? Because I don't think you can assume 
um, yeah, anything. I don't. I don't think so either. I think people don't know. They hope for mm-hmm. two years. They they fear six years. But there's still maybe not enough. I would caution not enough of an understanding that the U.S.'s general approach to Europe and to Germany might be changing. Um, that you have to become a bit more uh, responsible of a partner, but also a bit more confident, perhaps, um, in terms of foreign policy choices. We're already seeing over Iran um, that might be just the first example of the U.S. and its European allies um, going different paths. And I think that's okay. but it's something that uh, Germans will have to learn to to deal with because we're very used to looking to the United States for guidance when it comes to foreign policy. Mm -hmm. I'm going to offer an optimistic interpretation as well. But Jana, turn to you first. Yeah, because there is also one worrying trend in Berlin or worrying me personally, because I still believe in transatlantic uh, relations and and I I would love to see them um, blossoming again. But um, there is a camp uh, in in Germany that uses also this current difficult situation as an opportunity to advocate for um, transatlantic divorce or for kind of um, a stronger EU, uh, not against the United States, but for more independence and for a post-American Europe. And um, I think that this is really dangerous because um, as, as Sophia said um, earlier when, when she talked about the new defense initiatives and when are they really are going to make a difference and the long time frame, I think to the short to medium term, there is just no alternative to, to uh, close cooperation between the US and the EU in terms of security. And to talk about a post-American Europe these days, I think is also really mm-hmm. dangerous. Although I think we have to of co- adjust somehow and 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 think differently but i think it's that is not necessarily a goodbye to all the americans so i i would i would add to that i mean i, I think there is in a way what we're doing now is kind of fighting about ourselves um and there are no more bitter disputes than a family uh internally uh, at times uh, but if you look at the the other uh, elements for example uh, the uh, bipartisan leadership of the Congress has just invited uh, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg to address a joint session of Congress uh, soon. Presumably that will happen around the 70th anniversary of NATO. I think that suggests a, you know, a deep um, reservoir of support in the United States, in both parties, for the transatlantic security relationship, for example. And I think if you if you can imagine... Almost any uh, international uh, crisis that is serious and has a security dimension, the United States, uh, one way or another, is going to want Europe on its side. And even more practically in operational terms, Germany is home to the largest contingent of U.S. forces in Europe. um, uh, And those people are not sitting there defending the Fulda Gap as they did 30 years ago. They are there carrying out uh, operations that uh, happen within Europe and sometimes go well beyond Europe. Um, The U.S. Africa Command is based in Germany, for example, which is something people don't always um, think about. So the, the investments the United States has made uh, in the transatlantic security relationship ha- pay great dividends, and I think it will be hard over time to overlook those, and I think people are coming around to that recognition. Sophia? Yeah, no, I completely agree with you, and I think uh, this debate needs to be 
led in much more nuanced terms because the way we're talking about it certainly in Germany right now is either status quo or a transatlantic divorce. Yeah. That's not the reality of the situation. Yes, there is a huge reliance on the U.S. Nu uh, nuclear umbrella, on the U.S. as a deterrence power in NATO and the security relationship, as we've discussed in this podcast, will remain very close. But there is, at the same time, a need for Europe to develop a more independent foreign policy, to think more about what are Europe's interests in this changing world, uh, and to think about these interests a bit more independently from the United States. Uh, let's just think about the relationship with China, for example, which will shape U.S. foreign policy mm -hmm. in the foreseeable future. Europe has to do some very hard thinking about whether it wants to blindly follow the U.S., whether it needs the U.S. as a partner, but with its own priorities sketched out. So I think that's the much more interesting t debate to be had right now and h how we can change the terms of this very close relationship rather than just, you know, divorcing or staying together. Yeah, I, I, well, and and I think there are some some uh, myths or conventional wisdom on both sides that uh, would crumble quite quickly. If you think about a post-American uh, Europe, uh, as as you put it, uh, Jana, that some that some discuss in Germany nowadays, uh, unless one is going to abandon European security to the tender mercies of Russia, um, that means a level of investment in European uh, security capabilities and collective action, which far dwarfs any 2% uh, target. Um, you know, it would be 4% of GDP that Europe would have to spend in order to defend itself without a transatlantic security connection. And similarly, I think on the, uh, you know, on the American side, we... As we demand more um, uh, burden sharing and greater responsibility from our European friends and allies, we have to recognize uh, that with that responsibility comes a desire, just as you said, Sophia, for a for a greater say. Um, so we we can't uh, sit here in Washington and want to have it both ways. Want to have Europe pay more of the burden, but still to follow the U.S. lead, um, you know, unquestioningly in certain cases. So I think there's a lot of growing uh, that has to be done uh, on both sides. Um, and maybe that's not a bad place to end this uh, symphony. Um, I, I want to thank Sophia and Jana for, for joining me and uh, for a really uh, terrific discussion of, of some of the pressing issues we've got on the transatlantic security agenda. And look forward to doing it again sometime soon. Thanks. This was fun. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist from the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. Be sure to check AICGS.org slash podcast for notes from today's episode. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, please leave a review. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org, or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at AICGS, and Instagram at AICGSDC. Auf Wiederhören! <laughs>